Are you bored with those video games? Has you finally caught up on all your Netflix shows? Are you tired of Snapchatting with your friends over and over again while you stare at the same four walls? You're no longer in the state of Illinois alone, but now you've entered into the state of insanity. You're about to climb the walls. You might be thinking about jumping up and seeing if you can peel the paint off the ceiling before you go do something crazy. Stay tuned because I have a 25 to 30 minute diversion because you've just tuned in to HistoryCast. This is your host, your whispering wizard, your tour guide through time, Mr. J. Hughes. Travel with me through the sea of time. Let's look for answers, explore salacious rumors, juicy legends, and powerful secrets. Let's get down to the bottom of what it really means to be human. Welcome. So today we're going to be looking at the English Revolution, an exciting moment in history because the English Revolution becomes a catalyst for revolutions that are going to take place around the world. This is the story of the fight for freedom and dignity. So today's story begins just a few days before the 24th of March in 1603. Queen Elizabeth has fallen ill. She is now coming to the close of a 44-year reign. Elizabeth has been falling in ill health for quite some time. Most of her hair is gone, her teeth, and she is now um, trying to make an act of will to stand in her bedchamber. She fears that if she lays down, she won't rise again. And so for 15 hours, she stands straight until finally she can hold up no more and Elizabeth collapses. Four days later, she's still lying on the floor and she must be convinced by her courtiers to be put in the bed. Finally, she caves. She lay, as she lays in the bed, she might have felt fear. She has no heir of her own, no child, and the Tudor dynasty is coming to a close. But Elizabeth isn't worried, because her cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, had a son who was ruling Scotland. The Stuarts would now inherit the English throne. Church bells rang out across the land that March as she passed away. It might have seemed like spring was coming, but instead, dark winter was upon the world because the age of revolution had begun. So to know the story of the English Revolution, it must begin with this character we know of as James. You already know James's mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, also from Mary, Mary, Quite Contrary, How Does Your Garden Grow? You may not know enough about his father. His father was named Henry. Big surprise. And his father was also a relative of the Tudors. He was a Tudor cousin, meaning that Mary and Henry are cousins. Now, uh, it's a wonder that humanity made it this far, right? Anyway, Mary has grown tired of Henry at one point, and she decides she needs a new man in her life, a new view. It happens to be available in Philip II's young, hunky son, Don Carlos. And so she makes a plot, of course, to kill her cousin and to marry Don Carlos and bring England back into the fold of the Catholic Church. But as you know, the plot to kill Elizabeth is foiled and things go terribly wrong. She's executed and her husband, Henry Stewart, is also executed, leaving James VI as the new king of Scotland. James is 13 months old. So, I mean, obviously he's ready for this kind of challenge. If you're 13 months old and you don't have a job, really, 
you're, you're kind of a loser, okay? Now, J- James turns out to be pretty clever. I mean, not as a 13-month-old, but later on. And he, all things considered, is not a terrible king. Pretty decent at the job. And a few years before Elizabeth's death, she actually makes arrangements for James uh, to pass the throne to him because he's related to the Tudors from both parents. Again, want to stop there, don't want to comment, just want to point that out. In 1603, at the age of 47, he heads to London, and he's going to be coronated. And as soon as his coronation happens, a plague breaks out. I'm not even going to make a joke about that, because it's just too soon. So we know in the 17th century, people are not superstitious, you know, at all. So it might surprise you that the English consider this to be a bad omen. The English are kind of reticent about James, for a couple of reasons. First, uh, he is a Protestant, which, you know, goes along pretty well with most of England. But there is a faction, a strong faction in England, of Catholic supporters. They've been hoping and, and praying for a Catholic monarch to come into England. Instead, however, they get another Protestant. And Protestant rulers weren't particularly tolerant to the, to the, to the Catholics at many, in many turns, and so they had reason to hope that way. But the real issue is that he is Scottish. Now, to put it bluntly, and I'm English, so keep that in mind, but the English are kind of bigots, okay? And uh, historically, that seems to be true, and here, definitely. And they are kind of scared that the Scots are going to have too much influence into English politics. They're afraid the Scots are going to take over England, start imposing their own will and way, and they're also worried the Scots are going to come in and take away English jobs. Where have I heard this before? It sounds so familiar. All right, sorry, deja vu moment. Well, there are two plots that immediately come about to take care of it, because you know how things work in this period. If you don't like someone, you, you just kill them. So two plots to kill James emerges pretty quickly. The first one, uh, it doesn't come to anything. Okay, but in 1605, a very serious plot emerges uh, that almost claims his life. It is known as the gunpowder plot. Now, the gunpowder plot is kind of an awesome name for a plot. The conspirators are Catholic, and they have grown tired of the persecution of the English government. In fact, 13 of them have now come together, and what they've decided to do is rent a cellar underneath the place where King and Parliament have been meeting. And they're going to get enough explosives to take down London Bridge if they can. They're going to pack this room full of explosives. And the idea is when the king comes in, sits on his throne, they're going to, somebody in there is going to give a signal. It's going to move, and Guy Fox is going to set everything off. The problem is, that's a lot of people involved in a conspiracy of that sort. And so, as you can imagine, when you get too many people in a conspiracy, you've got to keep those things small, guys. When you get too many people in a conspiracy, somebody's going to let the cat out of the bag. And so the king finds out he's anonymously tipped off and Fox is caught. He's uh, tortured, which, of course, obviously, you know, he confessed. And, uh, and he is to be hanged. Now, the day he's to be hanged, he leaps off the gallows and breaks his own neck. But the king isn't, he doesn't think that that's enough. He decides that he's going to send a message they're going to quarter Guy Fox, which means they're going to cut his body into four pieces and send it out across the kingdom to the four corners of the kingdom. Now, I don't know. Do you get a discount when you send bodies in the mail? Is there some type of like special mailing system for that? I also want to know what happens when you're the person that gets the body. You open the, you open the box, you think you're going to get your Amazon, and the next thing you know, you're pulling somebody's bloody head out of the box. What is it, dear? 
oh, it's just a bloody head. Okay, so I mean, I don't, I don't know how that works. But anyway, that's an interesting question that you should definitely explore through research. Now, uh, James is ruling now over a very divided England. He, he recognizes it, and he tries to do a few things to bring the English together. Now, this isn't going to work out in his favor, but, you know, it's a noble stab. First thing he's going to do is he's going to try to bring together the flags, the, the Scottish, the English, the Irish, and the Welsh flag into one conglomerate, which he does. It's called the Union Jack. Now, the Union Jack doesn't become the official English flag until the 19th century, but in 1606, Union Jack starts to get used. Some of the military uh, personnel begin to put this flag up, and it's just one attempt to recognize that they're all part of a united kingdom. And so uh, this is one way in which James attempts to, to combat this division. The other way is James wants to create a strong, uh, steady translation of the Bible in English. And so he commissions 47 scholars, leading Bible scholars in England in 1611, to create a translation of the Bible that would put, that would put the Bible into the language of the common people. Now there are 47 translators emerge, and they come out with a pretty close standardized version of the Bible, pretty close together, I mean, as far as what they came up with. And it's, it's not a bad translation. It has a lot of communicating of words and thoughts of the ancient text. But there's a growing group of religious dissenters who just don't really feel that James is giving it enough, okay? There needs to be more reforms. This group of people are going to be a major large pain in James's neck. In fact, they're kind of a large pain in a lot of people's neck. They're called the Puritans. Now, Puritanism uh, can, of course, be summed up with the idea that they're looking for the church to be pure. They want to get rid of all vestiges of, quote-unquote, popery in the church. Let's make sure that we get rid of stained glass windows and things that smell like Catholicism. We want to purge the church and to make it absolutely clean uh, as it can possibly be. And so... This group of people are going to cause trouble down the road. We're not quite there yet. So for 250 years, this Bible has been a standard text. And there are still places today, churches today, that use this version and only this version. I mean, because after all, you know, you have to use the version that Moses and Paul and David and Jesus used. Just a fact, guys. God speaks like that. Thus and thou and thine. Okay, so uh, the King James Version, though, is a... Uh, is a, it's a pretty good version. Now, there's an interesting little thing about the King James Version. There's a legend that emerges. Now, this is absolutely a legend. Do I think it's true? No. But it's totally fun, so I'm going to tell it anyway. The legend is that uh, William Shakespeare, who was 46 years old at the time of the translation of the Bible, may have played a hand in it. I don't think Shakespeare contaminated the text, because there are a lot of originals that would tell us otherwise. But it is possible that he found a way to leave his calling card in the new translation. For example, if you go to the King James Bible and you pull up Psalms 46, uh, there will be, you go to the passage and you count 46 words down, you will see the word shake. The word there could have been tremble, but shake was chosen. If you go to the bottom and count 46 words up, you will find the word spear. So, is it possible that Shakespeare put his name in the Bible. Now, this is not a source of small controversy. It's pretty unlikely, and there were other translations before this that used the word shake and spear there, so maybe there was nothing to it. But it is not out of the realm of possibility that Shakespeare kind of left his card. That's the sort of thing he might do, is leave us a little cryptic message. So something cool to think about, and you can check it out on your own and see what you think. 
So James has a problem. First of all, James is a massive flexor, okay? And his court is filled with bling. He has a lot of trouble with his finances in Scotland and and uh, he thought, when I get England under my control, I have the two realms together, and that should provide me with enough money to keep things moving. But Parliament doesn't feel that way. Parliament wants him to tighten his belt because, you know, as the I'm English, and I can tell you straight up, we are cheap. And uh, they, uh, every good English story, as I've told you many times before in class, starts with taxes. So James was stubborn, and he's not one to budge when it comes to considering other people's opinions and ideas. James has a very strong medieval belief that he rules by divine right, okay? He's God's anointed. That's a fact. In fact, that's the end of the story, okay? Uh, God spoke, and so, you know, really, you, you can't go against God, guys, all right? This doesn't work out. So Parliament doesn't like his ideas, and they're not going to fund this. So he says, fine, if you don't want to help me, then I don't really need you here at all. So he disbands Parliament pretty much. Uh, they're hardly ever called. And for about 11 to 12 years, basically, they don't do a whole lot. James is running the country all by himself. But that doesn't totally solve his problem because, after all, Parliament controls major purse strings. So James has got to find an easy way to raise some cash and to raise it fast to keep up his lavish lifestyle. He's living like a gangster. So... Instead of selling candy bars, he kind of moves into something a little more lucrative, okay? He has a better money-making scheme. He's going to sell titles, nobility. He even creates this brand new title called Baronet that he sells, which is basically like being a knight, but being more than a knight. So you're like a super knight, which is kind of awesome, okay? And uh, to obtain this title, you've got to pay for it. And it might take you a good two to three years of installments to actually, you know, pay this thing out. So this gives James the money he needs to keep up that lifestyle and flex. And if you look at some of his outfits, I mean, they're baller. They're lit, okay? So this enables him to run the country without the assistance of Parliament. And he can kind of do what he wants. But Parliament's not happy, okay? They're pretty resentful. But the positive thing is, it's kind of kept James out of conflicts because he doesn't want to get into wars and things like that because that's going to require him to come back with Parliament. So James is still ruling over this very divided England, and things are pretty tough. Of course, to add to James's growing problems, tragedy strikes bringing sorrow to James and his family. Now, James had five daughters and two sons. His oldest son is yet another Henry. Okay, The boy was the pride and the joy of his parents. He was supposed to be king, and he was strong, he was athletic, he was bright, he was considerably handsome. Oh, I'm looking at the picture, I don't, I don't see it. But uh, unfortunately, in 1612, tragedy struck James and his wife, Anne of Denmark. Henry was out swimming in the Thames when he contracted typhus and dies. Tough break. Otherwise, we'd have had another Henry. But that's not to be. This leaves James in, this leaves James in shock and puts now his second son, Charles, on track to become the next English king. Now, Charles is, as we should say, not their choice, which is kind of a nice way to say he was a massive disappointment. He's small, he's weaker, he's not really as bright as Henry, and top it all off, he has a stutter, and people aren't terribly compassionate at the time. So, again, just another thing to add to the list of things they already don't like about Charles. The king and queen probably wished that Charles had been the one in the river as opposed to Henry, but 
History doesn't always work out that way. Now, the death is very hard on the family, and particularly uh, James. So James kind of starts really isolating himself, and he pulls in with his close advisors and seeks refuge there, and he finds refuge there, in fact. In 1614, James found solace in what is believed to be, by scholars and historians, the love of his life, a man named George Villiers. George Villiers was, you know, pretty handsome. He was very charismatic and strong, and Villiers really stole James's heart throughout the rest of his reign. He, he kind of takes center stage. Now, James had seven children with his wife, and so we know that uh, it appears that he probably preferred the company of young men. Uh, James is most definitely uh, bisexual, or he may have been, you know, homosexual and just had to fulfill, you know, his duties to create an heir. We don't actually know the story there, but we do know that Villiers is the love of his life. Now, some people want to question that because, obviously, you know, there are people who think, oh, that's stretching the truth. But here, let me read you a couple of their exchanges and letters. And I'll leave this to you, and you can look for more of these because there are actually a few. In one letter, James wrote to Villiers, he said, God bless you, my sweet child and wife, and grant you that you ever be comfort to your dear father and husband. So again, this is a very odd exchange between a man man doesn't usually call another man his wife, okay? So, again, even in that time, this is, this is very risque. So, Villiers writes back, I naturally so love your person and adore all of your other parts, which are more than any one man ever had. I'm not going to comment on that. Okay, so... Uh, Villiers uh, makes his way in being promoted by the king. He goes through every rank, baron, viscount, earl, marquis, and finally he hits the jackpot, Duke of Buckingham. Now, to be a duke was a big thing, okay? Major thing. To catch the import of this, it would be important to note that George was the first non-royal duke in hundreds of years. But little did James know, this relationship would have some ultimate ending that would set England into war and set the stage for further issues with his, in the reign of his son, Charles. So speaking of Charles, let's kind of move forward a little bit. So the year now is about 1618. And as you know, there's a, there's a war happening in Germany. It gets pretty bad. It's called the 30-Year War, and there's about 8 million casualties in this war. James, of course, has a personal stake. His daughter is married to the Platinate Elector Frederick, who is at war with Catholic powers. And Spain, under the influence of the Pope, has decided they're going to bring Germany back into the fold. Now, James feels that the war is coming on, and he, he kind of feels the pressure to get involved because his daughter Elizabeth is there, so that makes some sense. So he finally calls Parliament in, but Parliament has been festering. They've been kind of mad, actually. And uh, they're back together, and they're saying, hey, you know, we'll, we'll talk, we'll put uh, Germany on the table here, but let's table that for the moment, and let's discuss the problems we have with you. So, James doesn't want to hear that, obviously, because, you know, he's got better things to do than hear criticism about himself. So, the parliament doesn't work out, and James is now realizing, well, my power over purse is pretty thin. So, he comes up with another clever plan. I have a young son who's ready to be married, the Spanish have a young woman who's ready to be married. And so he proposes that his son Charles would become the husband of the Spanish Infanta. Now, the Infanta is a straight-up cutie. And Charles is smitten. 
With the supervision of George Villiers and his servant Richard Wynne, he decides to make a romantic journey to woo her. Uh, he thinks it's bravery and chivalry, but it's actually kind of laughably vain and ridiculous. Uh, he tries to disguise himself as Mr. Smith, but I mean, everybody knows he's a sovereign. I mean, it's not, they didn't have pictures in the internet, but you know, people know. So he gets there, and the Infanta is not happy to see him. In fact, she doesn't see him at all. He he doesn't even make it to the friend zone. Like he's he's just he gets shut down. It's cold, guys. It's real cold. He attempts to win her over, but he's rebuffed. You see, Spain is still kind of ticked off at England over stuff that happened with Henry all the way back in that reign. They're still mad that there's a Church of England. So um, he goes home rebuffed, like a puppy with a tail between his legs. But he stops off in France, and he meets a new hottie. And uh, he's, he's interested, okay? So the indignant James and Villiers call for a new match with France because Spain didn't keep their end of the deal. So now Charles, he's in this thing now, okay? This, this situation has gotten personal. It's gotten real. He's had some time to recover from his, from his, uh, his rebuke, and now he's personally insulted. So he and Villiers push James for a call uh, of Parliament, okay? So James does, and of course it's an explosion of anti-Catholic sentiments, and the, young, the, they all, the House of Commons agrees with the young prince. But the cost of this is high, and anybody in that house who, who finds themselves, uh, or the other house finds themselves kind of disagreeing, coming out against it, well, they're going to end up in trouble, okay? Lord Bristol is one of those. He gets locked up in the Tower of London. So James, although outwardly professing, you know, his agreement with the war, James is is not so keen on the war because he knows this is going to be costly. And he's not the only one. The House of Lords also knows that this is going to be costly. They're uncertain in their reticence. They don't think that the war is prudent. But unfortunately, Charles was young to the throne and new, and so he is He's about to inherit the throne, and uh, he is he's determined to get something done. He doesn't have his father's peacemaking temperament, and Villiers is kind of pushing him that way. But James will never know what's going to happen, because by this time we've reached the year of 1625. James dies now from a serious bout of dysentery in 1625, and Charles, his son, succeeds him to the throne. But war is coming. The war is not in Germany. The war is not even in Spain. But the war is coming right there to England. But James has also set something else in motion. During his reign, the, Lo the London Company in 1607, which he founded, lands in Virginia and founds the colony of Jamestown. In 1620, a group of Puritans leave first England and then go to Holland and they leave Holland and they land at Plymouth Rock. And there, in the new world, a new story is about to begin. All right, uh, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening in. Uh, those of you that are listening from school, don't forget to do your homework.